This is a Maybe You Like It production. To find more productions, including podcasts, radio plays, and stage plays, visit www.maybeyoulikeit.co.uk. Maybe you like it, maybe you don't. Um... I, don't, I was just thinking. I was just thinking about this movie. I just. Oh man! You know wow. what? Before we get started, you know what? Some films are mediocre, so bad they make you moan. We're here to save the cinema. We do try this at home. Welcome back to another episode of Do Try This at Home, the podcast where we do try at home to rewrite <laughs> some of cinema's most mediocre offerings. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, uh, Caleb Barron, and I'm joined, as always, by the incredibly talented Harrison Gale. How are you doing, Oh, Harrison? stop. I'm... <laughs> I'm doing all right, you know, hanging in there as we all hanging are. I feel like there. I say that every time, and I'm sure it's getting grating by now. Like, how you doing? I'm hanging in there. I'm going to stop asking you how you're doing now. I'm just going to edit in from the yeah. week before. <laughs> just like a robotic voice, like, I am, I'm doing fine. <laughs> anyway, we should say... I'm great. A little peek behind the curtain, full disclosure... Although this is the first episode of this season you'll be listening to, this is actually our fifth episode we've recorded. So we're like fully into uh, this new season, but for you, this will be new. So let's, Harrison, would you mind giving the listeners a little insight into what this season of Do Try This at Home is all about? Sure thing. So uh, for season two of Do Try This at Home, uh, we decided to take on the production and distribution behemoth Netflix. Netflix, um, baby. Yeah. <laughs> they're going so down. The whole, they're, <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're going to be the, the Woodward and Bernstein... <laughs> of uh reviewing netflix films <laughs> uh yeah so all all throughout the season we'll be taking uh, a handful of netflix's most mediocre uh mm. fare and picking it apart and figuring out how to make it better and boy is there a lot to choose from <laughs> oh yeah there is a smorgasbord of just middling crap yeah, and and the question we're kind of trying to answer with this is like, what what the heck is a Netflix original movie? You know, <laughs> you're right. What the heck is a Netflix original movie? I don't know why that made me laugh so much. We are, what we the are, heck? We are weeks into this, and still, yesterday, Harrison and I are messaging like, being like, why why is Child of the Chicago Seven somehow the same why? as Love Wedding Repeat and and wine country and also six underground how yeah, are they somehow, all the same somehow they all feel the same and <laughs> i mean we're gonna get to the bottom of it we're oh, gonna yeah. do it even if it takes us all 10 episodes of the season we are gonna answer that question oh yeah anyway but obviously we have the joy of this being the the beginning of the journey for our listeners into the netflix originals yeah. um but also it's a very special day today. And that sounds like I'm going to sing happy birthday to you or something. Like. Even though it was my birthday last week, so... And mine the week before, so... So... They, they, so... Um... um. 
I don't really know both, what both of us just like that. purposely being passive aggressive, but we both have the same reason. <laughs> um, it is. It's the Oscars. Where? Oh yeah, and. Boy, is this an Oscars special. It sure is. Um, Well, I mean, here's the thing. I mean, I'm actually very excited to be, you know, doing this, I guess, Oscar special for um, the podcast because the Oscars are like you would think, at least for, you know, if you were an alien that landed on Earth and Mm. someone was like, here's what movies are. And then every year we have this award ceremony for the ones we think we are the best. An alien would probably think, oh, cool. So there's like a way for everybody to agree on what the best movies are. Um, But in reality, it's this actually very polarizing institution, uh, which I think is true for a lot of different awards. But I think it's especially true of the Academy Awards. I think just because it always like comes at the end of you know production year, it happens after that year's you know con film festival. So even con is like you know in in that way, it, it's not like the end of like you go to con and if you do well there, like at least a lot of American filmmakers think of it this way. I'm sure it's different internationally, but a lot of American filmmakers view Cannes as like, um, oh, if you do well at Cannes, you'll get momentum for the Oscars Oscars, later. Uh, So in many ways, it's like this cultural finish line of like this marathon for these films to gather critical and and, uh, critical acclaim. And yet... No matter what, <laughs> at, like once the nominations comes out, like there's always somebody who's not happy either because something yeah. was excluded or something was included that they think shouldn't have been. Yeah. And well, and this happens to me. I'm not film. saying like yeah, this film. Yeah, this <laughs> film. Mm-hmm. Um, like, and I'm yeah. not saying that like oh, I'm above this, so I don't care about the Oscar. Like, you know, I I care about them, and I you know let myself get mad about stuff. Well, I I think a lot of people, it's this thing of the, the Oscars hold such prestige, mm-hmm. and to see films that you think are deserving be ignored, or to see films that you think aren't deserving get praise feels frustrating especially if you're someone who cares a lot about cinema and the direction of the industry and mm-hmm. so often it is this incredibly prestigious awards ceremony uh, yet it, they so often get it wrong and if you look at the best picture winners so many of them will have another film that came out that year that is widely regarded as a far better film and I would say, yeah, you know, this is a, a weird year for the Oscars in many ways. You, you know, we're coming off the back of the, well, I say the back of the pandemic. We hope it's the back of the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll see. But we're coming off the back of, of a year of cinema being shut down in a way it never has before. And so, you know, the films that are up, there's lots of films that were going to be up for this year and aren't because they didn't get cinema release. And then there's mm-hmm. lots of films that weren't going to be up for this year and then have been picked up by streaming sites uh, for distribution and then have been put in cinemas just for an Oscar campaign. So it's a, a strange year in that sense. But also I think it's a weird year because I think last year, year the film that did win was parasite which i mean i would say is probably like one of the closest examples to a perfect film like you know it it might not be your favorite film but like in terms of how how well made it is Mm -hmm. it's very close to perfect and so it's this strange year as well coming off the back of that where finally the oscars made the right call and now oh yeah you mean the last time i felt happiness 
like just <laughs> unbridled joy. The last yeah. time I was happy before uh, the pandemic was yeah. was quite literally when Parasite won Best Picture. <laughs> oh. I just lost my mind. Yeah. I have not known peace since then. <laughs> I should have known that something bad was coming. Like it was just too good to be true. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. So I think I think the Oscars are in a weird position this year with all of that to contend with to then make the right call on what films um, are considered 2020's best. And, mm-hmm. uh, well, you know, 2020-2021. On that best picture list is this week's film that we're oh, taking yeah. a look at, uh, which is Aaron Sorkin's The Trial of the Chicago 7, which is a Netflix original film. What's uh, kind of slightly interesting about Trial of Chicago 7, I was looking a little bit into the production history. So this was originally written by Sorkin back in 2007 to be directed by Steven Spielberg. And at the time... They had a couple of names attached. I believe they had Will Smith attached um, what? to play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's to crazy. play Bobby Seale. Yeah, yeah. That's which should have been crazy. mad casting. But then in something like 2013, Spielberg kind of said, oh, we're going to do it at a lower budget and I want to cast mostly unknowns. Mm. Um, then the film kind of just got lost in the ether of Hollywood. And then uh, in 2018, Sorkin basically persuaded Spielberg that he was a good enough director to direct it himself and then signed on all of these big stars. You know, your Sasha Baron Cohen's Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Eddie Redmayne, John Carroll Lynch, who I guess isn't like an A-list star, but is like a well-known actor, Jeremy Strong, yeah. you know, all of these people and Frank Langella and um, uh, and even a cameo appearance from Michael Keaton, which is the film okay, we let me let me just point out that when <laughs> Michael Keaton showed up like 70 minutes into the movie i felt the same kind of like um just totally surprised joy that i felt when bob odenkirk showed up like (laughs) halfway through little women and he says my little women like that's how i felt when i saw Uh, michael keaton pop like this yeah because he because he famously comes on screen he says oh my the trial of the chicago seven My the trial of the Chicago <laughs> Seven. Yeah, it's a pretty crazy line that uh, Aaron Sorkin put in there. It, it, yeah, it's so so. <laughs> That's when I was like, wow, this is it. why he's such an excellent screenwriter. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I think uh, as we sort of get into the conversation, I think we can be slightly informed by that production history in that there was a time when this was going to be complete unknowns, and the film we ended up with had lots of actually big name stars in it, and I think that's mm. an interesting thing to get into. Anyway. Before we do, the plot of The Trial of the Chicago 7, according to Letterboxd, <sighs> is in 1968, democracy refused to back down. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> what was supposed to be a peaceful protest turned into a violent clash with the police. What followed was one of the most notorious trials in history. That's from letterbox.com. Dot com. <laughs> 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 what I mean that's that is the movie that we get but it's not necessarily the story that it should be telling <laughs> yeah um what a, okay but but you know we like to start positive on this podcast and very quickly go into the negative um <laughs> what what in this what of Aaron Sorkin's The Trial of the Chicago 7 did you like Harrison and what do you think could be carried forward into our own version of it um you know <laughs> This is what a question. Um, you know, I mean, like, I I hate to say it, but I think like Aaron Sorkin is a great writer of, in, I think generally of like snappy dialogue, and mm. there are moments where there's like, whenever it's like a quick back and forth and two people trying to work out a problem, 
I'm always yeah. fascinated. Like I, I can't help it, and I hate that I am. Um, yes. Because uh, I often find some of his work to be, you know, overall a little irritating, and you know, I mean, I think that's that's my thing with Aaron Sorkin that like he in his writing, like the quality of the dialogue is primatized in a way that like then the actual narrative structure is kind of neglected mm. um mm. like uh, uh, one of my friends on on letterboxd watched and reviewed this movie and they said it was like a classic sorkin movie or sorkin work in the sense that down to the climax of the movie is based on sentence structure yeah um, <laughs> which was like kind uh, of neat when i saw it the first time nerd. and then when i rewatched it i was like oh this is so trite <laughs> yes yes um yeah. but you know in keeping with with talking about the positive before we get into what we would work on <laughs> like i would definitely say like you know the the dialogue itself separate from the narrative of the film was really sharp yeah. Um and I and I quite like the performances of the the lead actors. I think uh, I mean, I don't know if they were being <laughs> given much away. I think <laughs> well, there were a couple that I there were a couple of them that I really liked. Um like I think yes. um Yahya Abdul Mateen the second's performance as Bobby Seal was great. Yeah, absolutely. I yeah. love as we all know I loved Michael Keaton. Um and fun fact, one of the or one of the actors in the ensemble cast of the film the actor who plays uh john freund's uh is danny flattery who uh is from the same hometown as me we're both from glenrock new jersey ah, no way yeah and if i'm not mistaken he went to my high school so it was like kind of neat seeing him pop up there that was my fun uh, I, fact I, I i oh that's the fun fact that's the fun fact <laughs> he was at your high school yeah he went to your high school <laughs> Anyway, because I was starting. Well, I was, I was going to say, I think I liked. I actually liked the ensemble performances more than I liked the performances of the so-called leads. Why did I say so-called? Oh. That's not what I mean. As in, I mean, I the think so-called. I think Yaya Abdul Mateen II, great. Uh, I think um, Mark Rylance as oh, William yeah, Kunstler, great. Alex Sharp no as Rennie wrong. Davis was great. John Carroll Lynch as David Dellinger. I I think John Carroll Lynch is an incredible actor. I enjoy every so performance i see him do yeah he's he's amazing and then i think eddie redmayne is so boring as tom hayden maybe he's meant I, to be but oh I, so I honestly, dull i thought he was miscast yeah to be quite yeah. honest yeah i don't i just don't understand why it's him i i honestly i very strange and then um sasha baron cohen as abby hoffman like what is that like <laughs> abby that was hoffman, a little out there he's so abby hoffman i believe was like in his like mid 30s when this was happening or maybe maybe younger than that even Hmm. let's do some quick maths yeah (laughs) hold on because he yeah anyway either way he was younger than sasha baron cohen and sasha baron cohen's massachusetts accent was very i mean it was entertaining but for the wrong reasons yeah um, it, it felt very uh don Cheadle in uh oceans 11 yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> he's just like They're like yes i'm loving this but not for the reason you want yeah yeah he's like we were on it to cart there's <laughs> the trial the chicago seven it's like what is happening man like what are you doing like yeah very very strange 
Yeah, Abby um, Hoffman was uh, around 32 at the time yeah. of this trial. Well, because there's, there's a line early on where um, John Mitchell was saying, like, they're going to spend their 30s in prison. And I'm just looking at Abby like, Hoffman um, thinking, dude, his, your 30s are been and gone. <laughs> 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 and, yeah, and, like, I and look, like, I, I, I'm not saying necessarily that, like, age should be this massive barrier to parts but if it's not believable that this is like a young revolutionary then like like him and uh jeremy strong as jerry rubin it felt like they were some they were the old left and tom hayden was the new left just because there were these two older guys playing these parts whereas it's very much meant to be they're all part of a movement happening at the same time right so it was just like i was just like why again like just very strange casting of those lead parts and I would have much preferred to see unknown or, or close to unknown actors taking yeah. on these roles, like genuinely young actors taking on these roles and and playing these youthful revolutionaries. Yeah, I mean, and I, I think that would have been a much more interesting and stronger choice because this, this movie already would have had plenty of star power with yeah. just the name of Aaron Sorkin. Yes, you know, like yeah. he he is a he is a juggernaut in film and television. Like, and yeah. if it's going to be a Netflix release, like why like why not just sell it on that? Yeah, and that you're going like promising people that they're going to get an interesting you know historical drama, and yeah, then yeah. give people performances where like they're not constantly thinking like. Oh, that is Sasha Baron Cohen pretending to be Abby Hoffman, or that's <laughs> yeah. Eddie Redmayne pretending to be um, Tom Hayden. Instead, it's like, oh, like this feels like a like a genuine version of Tom. Yes, Hayden. Ex- no, exactly. And and like, let's say we keep like Frank Langella as as Judge Julius Hoffman. We keep Mark Rylance as William Kunstler. Like these are people that could Pepper remain in those those parts, and even keeping the cameo from Michael Keaton. But I mean, wouldn't <laughs> yes? This is the thing, though. Like, wouldn't that <laughs> cameo have been so much more exciting if if you had this cast of basically unknown actors right and then 70 minutes in you just chuck like, michael keaton uh, in for like five <laughs> minutes like how but honestly how exciting would that have been as a moment in the film when suddenly we have these unknown actors bouncing right. off of michael keaton who is you know has all of this history in in cinema i think it would have been much more interesting to watch. So yeah, I mean, I, I just like get that out of the way early on, to be honest, because casting is a thing that I, first first time watching, I didn't care about. And I thought, yeah, like they're all doing fine. But second time watching actually really grated on me, the choice of actors to play these parts. It's kind of crazy. Like, we were talking about this before, but it's kind of crazy how um, of, of the two major film performances that Sasha Baron Cohen gave this year, Borat was the one I preferred. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like, I truly think that his performance in Borat is more Oscar-worthy than his performance in The Trial of the Chicago (laughs) 7. And I mean that genuinely. Like, I'm not saying that to say, like, and that's not saying much, because I think he's absolutely brilliant as Borat. Like, yeah, I genuinely yeah, yeah. think that that was the Oscar-worthy performance. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's a strange world we live in. And, you know, and I think actually part of all of this comes down to, you know, the as you pointed out, like, the good thing in this is Sorkin has this real ear for snappy, exciting dialogue, especially problem-centered dialogue, like you said. I mean, you think mm-hmm. of Moneyball, The Social Network, 
Uh, I mean, even looking back to West Wing, but like, you know, those films center around people in rooms just figuring out problems. And it's so much fun to to listen to as well as to watch. But in this film, I think what is missing slightly is we have this, we have this non-linear structure where we have the courtroom stuff happening and alongside it, we're then occasionally, especially later in the film, actually, flashing back to the you know the events of 1968 the summer of 1968 in chicago and the events of the summer of 1968 always feel so much less interesting than what's happening in the courtroom mm. is that did, did you feel the same way i mean yes but also i didn't think what was happening in the courtroom was that interesting either <laughs> um, so that didn't help um, well not necessarily in the courtroom but i mean in the in the present day but no, I, I think you're right. In the, it's, it's not necessarily presented in the most interesting way. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I honestly think, like, like, I get what he's trying to do by having, like, these past events, like, interwoven with the trial in, like, you know, the film's present. But yeah. I, like, ah, there's just, I mean, and I guess because it it's a Sorkin film so this is how it's you know it's going to be a lot of people just standing around and talking but the narrative structure is is the issue in in some ways in that sense in that like Sork, I mean, Sorkin's trying to do what he did with the social network right where we have present day legal proceedings mm-hmm. reflect the story of the past the difference being that the real meat of the social network is the story of w- how Facebook was made and it's right. framed by these deposition meetings in the present in the trial of Chicago 7, the real story is the courtroom drama. Mm-hmm. It is the trial of the Chicago 7. And yet, he uses the trial as a framing device of what happened the summer before. Which, right. which is just bad storytelling. And that's not supposed to be the interesting part. No, well, or at least not in the way that he set up the film. Exactly, yeah. I, and it, and it it's can't like, be the crux of the of the in, like interesting narrative conflict because exactly. that part is in the courtroom with like you know a defendant being pulled out of court so he can be beaten up and gagged yeah. and chained absolutely and and uh, you know that's i think that's it right is we get to this place where what feels like it should be background to the film is given foreground in the latter half of the film right as telling the story and it's like why am i still you know you get to the point where we're being (laughs) told the story of how they're arrested and like an hour and a half into this film we're finally told the story of how they're arrested and you're just thinking why 90 minutes in am i being given the background story to the trial of the chicago seven you know like it it doesn't make sense what you know the there are a myriad of climaxes you could choose for this film, but one sh- could have been and should have been uh, maybe Bobby Seal being gagged mm-hmm. and chained in that courtroom or, or at least an end of second act. But right. it kind of gets discarded because it's not interesting. I mean, the, again, the film is called The Trial of the Chicago 7. Bobby Seal being there makes it The Trial of the Chicago 8. You know, right. it's, I, I, it's, I don't know. I, I It's so wrapped up in... Clearly, Sorkin is far. Oh, well, I was going to say he's, he's far more interested in Tom Hayden and Abby Hoffman, but actually, like, it's not even. 
it's not even clear what he actually is in is interested in here. He throws yeah. so much thematically at the wall of, you know, because he, he does a bit of the Bobby Seal stuff, but then he does Tom Hayden as this moderate, who I don't think Tom Hayden actually was a, a moderate. Like, no, so, not like, at all. He, he absolutely I mean, wasn't. he was married to Jane Fonda, who was yeah. probably one of the most radical left-wing activists in you know of her time yeah absolutely like you know th- this is this is a man who who is as close to abby hoffman and jerry rubin in his sort of revolutionary thinking maybe in a slightly different way but you know he sets him, him up as this sort of more liberal moderate and then abby hoffman and jerry rubin are just jokes the whole way through like their their leftist movement is the butt of every joke or every joke it can be the butt of like mm-hmm. it's I don't know. Like, it just feels like... And and so, you know, he's making jokes out of that just because he wants to make things funny. And then you have the character of Richard Schultz is played as a kind of, like, potentially redeemed prosecutioner. But actually, the real Richard Schultz was, like, a snarling, like, very, like, pro-Nixon, very anti-the Chicago 7 guy Mm -hmm. who was, like, would do anything to make them seem bad you know it's it just feels like what what are what what's the theme like what are you talking about and what do you want to get out of this film like why why tell this story because it just feels like he's telling the story for a bit of buzz Mm -hmm. rather than like having a reason to tell this story which yeah i don't know i just there's a lot there to <laughs> I just throwed it all out there. Yeah, but that's well, that's no, kind of what I, Aaron Sorkin does. <laughs> yeah, no, but I, I agree with you. And and I think what makes this different from, say, like the social network is I, I think in many ways the social network is more focused. That you yeah. know, basically three threads of character arcs in the film. You've got Mark Zuckerberg, Eduardo Saverin, and the Winklevoss twins. And the Winklevosses are like, you know, for for all intents and purposes, the antagonists along with Sean Parker. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and Eduardo Saverin are both very different people at the end of the film than they are at the beginning. And, like, yeah. you are tracking their changes throughout. And that gives it a structure. Because even though we're jumping back and forth between, you know, the film present and the background story you know we get points where we see them change in their behavior and you know mark zuckerberg starts out as like you know a goofy nerd and ends up you know uh being like a a psychopathic asshole um Mm. and then you know eduardo saverin starts as like you know just this like i guess like generally ambitious you know ivy league kid Um, and then he has to grow up real fast when he's betrayed by his best friend, um, and, you know, has to, you know, sharpen his fangs too. And I, that's, I think what is missing for me in the trial of the Chicago seven, that we're not given enough like character arc linchpins to figure out what change is happening or how this experience is changing anybody. Like, for example, take Tom Hayden, who, like, generally in the film is, like, everybody's spokesman. And, Mm. you know, he's not really different at the end than he is at the beginning. And so there's this, the question that's hanging over the whole film, which we never get an answer to, is, so what? Why are we watching this story? What is it that we're supposed to get out of this? You know, why are these characters be being put through this crucible 
And I don't think the film has an answer to that. And even though, you know, you may be adapting a, a story from real life, but if you're doing that, you still, you know, if you still want it to work as something that's entertaining and as something that speaks to something beyond just, I've decided to make a movie. Um, yeah. you, you have to structure it in a way that it's going to have something that's resonating with its audience. It has to know what it's trying to say. Yeah. Um, and I don't think this film does know what it's trying to say. The characters just don't change. Yeah. You know, no, why absolutely. now? Why this? And well, and you know, and in some ways it's not even just about that character change, but for me as well, like th- this film, what this film should be. Okay. This film, there's, there's a couple of directions it could go in, right? This could be a film, a really good film about Bobby seal and mm-hmm. his, you know, you could even call it the trial of the Chicago eight. And it's, you know, we start with his, his time in Chicago, that very short four hours. And we see mm-hmm. what that was. And then we get launched into the court case and we see him constantly misrepresented, not represented his constitutional rights uh, ignored. And then eventually him being severed from the case. Okay. Like that is a potential thing that you could do with a Bobby seal story here. The other story here is this is Kunstler's story. You know, sure. this is a, a guy who is trying to represent a disparate group of leftists uh, who cares a lot about their cause, cares a lot about this case, and is trying to make the most... Well, him and um, uh, Wineglass as well, Leonard Wineglass, played by Ben Shankman, who, again, is someone I think is a, a good actor but didn't really do anything in this film. But, yeah, like, it could be their film, right? And it's it's about the challenges of the case. Mm-hmm. It's about constantly being undermined by the fact that they are against the, you know, like, the federal government. Right. And, and, and the federal government is throwing everything it can at, at them to stop them from winning this case. And it becomes, I guess, a, a kind of a sort of tragedy in that, in the end, they do lose. But with that sort of uplifting thing of, yeah, but actually we still were able to make a point. Um, yeah. So though, like, those are two potential directions you, you could take this story in to give it a bit more focus and to focus it around a character. But right. I think as well, both of those options also focus it around a specific theme or narrative idea. So the Bobby mm-hmm. Seal one, would it would be about the difference uh, in his treatment to the other defendants because of his race mm-hmm. and about the fact that he was a black panther he was a prominent black activist and the difference that that had for his experience like in comparison to the white activists that he was stood alongside but had no real part in uh in what they were up to okay mm-hmm. um and the william kunstler uh, story is all about law and the process of law and this idea this you know really exciting uh story of an underdog facing uh, a sort of unmovable institution. Um, right. Like those, so those two, they they would lean more on character, but more crucially, I think, they lean more on a specific theme and a specific narrative function that is more interesting than this mishmash sort of messy thing that Sorkin mm-hmm. creates. And look, you know, I, I'm someone who... I mean, I'm not, I don't think I'm like Sorkin level as a writer. I don't claim (laughs) to be, but like I have written two uh, one act plays based on true stories. And the challenge is always 
like how do I tell this story when there's so such a like a wealth of like real life you know if, if a story takes place even if a story takes place over a weekend you have a weekend's worth of content there to turn into one story you know what I mean and right. it's that challenge of what do I keep what do I lose and you know the first one I play I wrote was that that story spanned over a decade and it's how do I decide what here is interesting and also what here is going to fit what I'm trying to do, what my aim is. Right. And, you know, with that, I would argue that I was still able to keep closer to the truth than this film was in an, in an hour spanning 13 mm-hmm. years or 14 years. And look, you don't have to stick to the truth when you're writing something based on a true story, but you've got to, you've got to be able to say, this is why I didn't include this real thing, or mm-hmm. this is why I changed this thing that actually happened in real life. Right. And with the changes that are made and the things that are left out, I... I'm forced to question why Sorkin did those things. And it's not, as we've discussed, in service of character or of uh, narrative and thematic function. I I definitely agree with you there. And I think, I mean, I I hate to be so cynical, but my instinct is to say that, you know, what the, the, I think one of my biggest issues with this film and a, a lot of Sorkin's work is that it feels like there are moments that are meant to be like, you know, these really impressive uh moments of like well what i like to call and then everybody stood up and clapped moments <laughs> but they only work if you earn them um like and i don't think that this film earns them and you like mm. I, I personally feel like you earn them through you know narrative structure that you know yeah. is is clear and effective but also you know in, inventive and you know, and not cliched, which is, you know, easier said than done. Yeah. Um, but I mean, the film literally ends with everybody standing up and clapping. Well, and, and, this is the, and this is the thing though, right? Like that's maybe the sixth or seventh time everyone stood up and clapped in the film as well. Right. So it doesn't like, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like an earned moment Yeah. because we've already seen that a hundred times and it, you know, it's like, you can't, the movie can't be all, and then everybody stood up and clapped, <laughs> 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 oh, which yeah. like, and I use that term because also because it carries with it the sense of like, well, that like of unbelievability, like that didn't really happen. You know, when yeah, people yeah. like they, they tell you a story where you can kind of feel or figure out that you know they're either lying or you know just exaggerating a situation to make themselves look better and you know and it feels like you know this crazy thing happened and i you know i turned out to be a hero and then everybody stood up and clapped and and then even the walls clapped and then you know and then stuff like that and then uh you know the the child i helped grew up to be beyonce and it's like stuff like that (laughs) yeah it feels like this that's the that's the essence of this film just like you know he wants us to applaud these like little cute little moments um Mm. of like you know really just like neoliberalism while pretty much stripping it of all of its like radicalism and and historical significance let's let's get into that because i i mean look i don't like to be i don't necessarily want this podcast to be overtly political all the time but this is a moment where i think it needs to be because um because what sorkin does here and 
what he's done before, but it's like the worst here is a liberal rewrite of, uh, you know, a neoliberal rewrite of a revolutionary tale. These are left-wing revolutionaries. Now, some of them don't remain left-wing revolutionaries for their whole life. Jerry Rubin becomes a a, a successful businessman. Um, And I was reading earlier about, he he did a tour called The Yippie Versus The Yuppie, where him and Abby (laughs) Hoffman went around debating each other, which I think is amazing. (laughs) But Sorkin is rewriting this as a a story founded on neoliberal ideals. And, you know, partly being that the American institutions are not the problem it's the people in those institutions mm-hmm. it couldn't possibly be that there's an issue with the way the government is structured it couldn't possibly be that the court system you know the legal system doesn't actually isn't actually fit to for purpose it couldn't possibly be any of these myriad of of issues within like actually embedded within the systems themselves it's just mm-hmm. the people using those systems and that's not what these people were arguing for right. abby hoffman wanted a cultural revolution and then they have him say that he loves the american institutions i mean yeah it's for, i mean for some of myself as well who believes in the causes that people like abby hoffman and tom hayden were fighting for it's incredibly infuriating to see someone then rewrite that as as sort of just a neoliberal ideals that completely fit Sorkin's idea of how the world should be and mm-hmm. not how these people that he's writing about thought the world should be. Yeah, and honestly, like, I don't even think you need to be, I don't even think you need to be a leftist to, you know, at least think that characters who are based off of real people should at least be like, if, if you're going to be writing a story that has so much to do with politics, that those characters should be accurately representing the politics of the people that you're basing them on. Like, I don't even like, you know, and I consider myself a leftist, but I don't think a writer needs to be a leftist to under like, to think that that is important. And I think that's part of why this film feels so hollow because he's writing words to come out of the mouths of these people who would have never said those things and even if you don't know the history of it like there's still something about it that feels off that isn't quite clicking or doesn't make sense and it's because like why would these why would the u.s government come down so hard on a group of people if all of they were saying was like oh we need you know reform and for our listeners (laughs) i'm doing like the i'm 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 doing like the the um like an emoji thing with the pouty face and the two two pointing fingers together. <laughs> I'm doing that right now while I say that. Like, we, reform need, we just need for reform. Me? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can I have reform? Like, obviously, they're coming so down so hard on these people because they are advocating for a dismantling of an inherently corrupt system. Like, yeah. that is why yeah. they are, you know, pulling out all the stops and throwing the proverbial book at them. And if yeah. you, if, and just narratively, if you want the story to make sense, you need a justification and not, not justification in like, oh, they're, they're right to do this sense, but justification in the sense of like, you know, uh, having an adequate motivation for this. Yeah you know, extreme kind of retribution that the U.S. government is bringing down on these people. And if you remove that, then the story doesn't make sense anymore. And that's why it feels so hollow. And this is the other issue with making Richard Schultz not an actual villain as well, is, you know, Sorkin has written Richard Schultz as close to his politics as he has Tom Hayden. Like, Mm -hmm. it's, we, we need 
especially in a courtroom drama. We need a foil. We need actual conflict. Like we need to, you need Richard Schultz to be a guy who is chomping at the bit to like take down the Chicago 7 because they're these, you know, dangerous left-wing revolutionaries that are going to dismantle the systems around us. And yeah. he doesn't feel like that. And they don't feel like they live up to the the um, labels given to them. And so you're left with everyone just falls somewhere in the center, which is, I'm sure is how Sorkin would love to reimagine history. But it's just simply not the case. And yeah. it makes for something that's very uninteresting. Yeah, it also <laughs> yeah. makes no sense in a courtroom drama yeah. because at least, you know, in the US, it's literally called the adversarial system. Yes. Uh, you know, yes. like the whole point is that you have one side arguing one side of the story and the other side doing everything to dismantle what the first side is saying and they attack yeah. each other and that's how you work out what the truth is. Yes. But yeah. in in this courtroom of two adversarial sides, there's no conflict. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And I think <laughs> I mean I don't know. I don't think we've actually really gotten to the root of how we're gonna rewrite this yet. Um maybe we'll do that with the next ten minutes. But I, yeah. I think that's absolutely in our rewrite. The thing that needs to come through is that we have the Chicago eight and I'm going to call them the Chicago eight mm -hmm. here, who have radical and exciting ideas that challenge a system that, you know, you got to remember as well, the American system is, it's still young. Like it, even now it's right, still young. Comparatively. Right? And, and so we have these radical ideas that are challenging a system that is just, you know, just at this time, um, has emerged as this massive global superpower. And now there's this domestic place in which people are saying, no, this system isn't right. Mm. And that to me, like that's, you, you need that on one side and then you need the people representing that system on the other who firmly represent that system and believe wholeheartedly in what that system gives them and the people that live in the United States. And, that's where your conflict comes from. And yeah. that's what's going to make an exciting film. Now, whether you frame that around Bobby Seale's story, whether you frame that around the actual case itself through William Constler, mm. whether you frame that around Abby Hoffman, whether you frame that around Tom Hayden and Rennie Davis, you know, it doesn't matter. You know, even if you could make this David Dellinger's film, like it could be if his If you film. wanted, yeah, sure. If you wanted. Why not? <laughs> but it doesn't matter. What you need is that conflict. And you need, you know, you need these two sides to represent something entirely different from each other. And if they mm -hmm. can't do that, then there's no drama here. This isn't mm -hmm. a courtroom drama. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but it's not interesting to watch. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like, I, I think let, let's roll with that idea. Like, what if what if we did make it a courtroom drama? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. You know, kind of like, you know, I mean, I think it's honestly trying too hard to be like Rashomon. Um, where, and like, like, that's just not what it is. Yeah. You know, it's not really concerned with, you know, with ideas of like memory, but it is concerned with an idea of what is the, what is the truth and, yeah. you know, how truth can be manipulated and covered up. So, you know, I'm going to suggest like, you know, I think 
Bobby Seal's play is an important story to tell, and I'm but I'm gonna say I don't think Aaron Sorkin is the one who is qualified to tell it. <laughs> so let's let a different director oh, do that story because don't. I don't think Aaron Sorkin is really gonna do him much justice, yeah, considering yeah, how no, he's right. you know watered down, um, you know leftists and socialists. But let's yeah. let's like let's lean into courtroom drama and let's make it about like let's make it about these lawyers. Who are like on one side are trying to like are trying to make an argument that, you know, this entire system of government is constructed in a way that makes it inherently corrupt. And then the other side is trying to argue that, you know, it's it's the best thing anybody's ever come up with. And these people, you know, are are the most dangerous enemy to, mm. you know, the values that they are arguing America represents and just let them go at it, you yeah. know? And then, yeah. you know, if you want to have, like, these moments where they're, you know, recalling what happened before, you know, lawyers have to, they have to consult their clients, they have to cons- they have to prep witnesses. Like, just make it about, if you're going to call it the trial of the Chicago 7, why don't you yeah. just make it the trial of the Chicago yes. 7? Like, show us the ins and outs of how the, you know, one side puts together its defense, you know, through William Kunstler's eyes. Like, he has to, you know, look at, at the facts and what he's mm. been given and the testimony from his clients, from his witnesses, and put together a case that is you know, trying to do something that is incredibly radical, which is to, you know, confront this inherently corrupt system. And then, you know, let's say the other side, like, how are they going to have to take the facts and, uh, you know, uh, rearrange the truth to make their argument that, you know, let's assume that the audience is meant to think is is wrong or that is, you know, nefarious. Um and let's just see, like, how, you know, and, and again, this question of, like, well, you know, what is the law? Why do we have the law? What is what is the purpose yeah. of the law in when it's, you know, applied in this structure that is corrupt? You know, yeah. and, and and if you're, you know, again, you're going to call it the trial of Chicago 7, make it the trial of Chicago 7. And, and yeah. then, you know, maybe cut back on these flashbacks because, and I think, you know, I think this is what the, sh- the show Law and Order has done so well, you know, over, over the course of, you know, all of these spinoffs and, you know, 20 seasons of the original show, which is really what I'm thinking of, which is half police procedural and half, you know, law procedural. In the law yes. procedural section, you know, what they, do is give you the ins and outs of how a prosecutor puts together a case and complications Mm. happen and you know one witness decides they don't want to testify and you know you get uh evidence uh suppressed because of bad searches or whatever the case may be and that in and of itself is very compelling if you identify with the end goal of the you know of the of the prosecutor and in this case it would be flipped right you're you're the intention is to identify the audience with the goal of the defense attorney or yes. you know the the lead attorney which is William Kunstler so let's let's see him try to put this together yeah. and moreover what law and order does is that it it holds back enough that you are compelled to see how it all plays out yeah. Um, but you still get enough of the story that, you know, of, of this case or whoever's being prosecuted that you understand it. They never yeah. show, they almost never show the crime 
in question ever actually happening or yeah, or yeah. whatever's being prosecuted ever happening. It, and often it's people, you yeah. know, stumbling upon what's occurred or maybe it's the moment before it happens, but they never actually show you what has happened and there are no flashbacks. And I think for a story yeah. like this would be very effective. Cut out flashbacks yeah. and let's just hear this story through the people who witnessed it and see how, like, you know, and try to piece it together in our own heads when, you know, in an actual trial, you don't have the benefit of watching flashbacks. All you yeah. have is the testimony of people who were there and the facts and evidence that you gather after the fact. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that that would make for a much more exciting film. I think I, I'm really keen to get this this title change to The Trial of the Chicago Way yeah. as well. Because, because actually, yeah, this shouldn't be Bobby Seale's story, especially if Aaron Sorkin's writing. But that that at <laughs> least holds back the information that he's definitely going to get severed from mm. the case you know like I, I i it's just it's really basic like why not call it that and then it's this exciting dramatic turn when bobby seal is is severed from the case right i think as well like sorkin does this thing where he leaves out key bits of information from what actually happens and then we find out about it after the fact i think about Moneyball. Um, right. where, where we don't actually, we don't actually see them lose the like key playoff game. Mm. Uh, we just, we're, and we, we're not even told actually in that film. It's just like two, like three scenes later, you realize, oh, they must've lost. Right. Which is like, like fun. Like that's a fine way of doing it. But in this, we don't see Bobby Seals. Do we see Bobby Seals case get severed? Uh, no, we do. Yeah. It gets declared yeah. a mistrial. Ignore me. I'm going to cut all of that. Um, <laughs> I had to think about it for a second. <laughs> well, but that's it. It's not. It's definitely not made a thing of anyway. Um, right, exactly. Which speaks volumes that we had to think about it for a second. To yeah, the, yeah. No, when it should true. have been huge. The the other thing that I think about is part of the challenge of the filmmaker, particularly when you're making something like a courtroom drama. Part of the challenge, but of any filmmaker making any film is to provide us with some of the internal goings on of our, our main characters. Mm -hmm. Why do we care about them? If all we see is their actions and their words, we need to know their thoughts, which, you know, when you're writing a, a novel or something like that, very simple, obviously, mm -hmm. but when you're right, when you're making a film, how do you offer us in, an internal monologue? Now, some films would do that with a voiceover or something like that. This film chooses not to. And I think to its credit, I think it would be weaker with a monologue um, from anyone. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I don't feel like I understand what's going on in the head of any of these characters. Um, or very rarely I do. What would make a very interesting film if, is if you, you get that shift of focus to William Kunstler and you, you just give us a little bit of insight as to what's going on in his head. Right. And Mark Rylance, like... He has the the chops to do it. Like the man is in a, one of the best actors of his generation, uh, particularly as a stage actor, which lends itself perfectly to a courtroom drama. So to give that to Mark Rylance to do would make for a much more interesting sort of focus to the film. And it would give us some like internal struggle to deal with as well. And it's not a struggle of like conscience or anything like that, but it's just a genuine intellectual battle of how am I gonna get these guys off of this crime? Right. Mm -hmm. And that, that to me is, is real. I mean, in a courtroom drama, that's all the drama that's needed. And the other thing as well is Sorkin shies away as much as uh, the sort of true story does 
from it being a political trial. <laughs> like, yeah. It's like they talk about how, oh, you know, Abby Hoffman says early on, oh, it's a political trial. And they just like, nah, it can't be, it can't be. And then they work out like an hour and 20 minutes in that it is. Like, but Sorkin himself seems reluctant to admit that this is a political trial. Mm-hmm. Come in straight away with this is a political trial, like you were saying, and make it about the politics as much as about the actual event. And I think you're absolutely right. I'm just reiterating what you were saying. Like no flashbacks, like or or, or very minimal. But but like like really tell us this story. You know, I mean, yeah, this is the in film we're told show don't tell. But in this case, tell us this story. Don't right. try and show me it. That's not what this is about. This is about how right. the story is told. And in a courtroom. That's the most important thing is how are you telling a story? And that's what this could have been. It I mean, is, that, yeah, yeah, that sounds good to it me. It all feels like a no brainer, right? <laughs> like I just think, like we talked a lot around things, but actually it took us 10 minutes to come up with what this film should have been. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, well, we had a lot to say about it. And I, you know, yes. I, I hope that our, our listeners feel the same when I say that it was very cathartic for me to vent about this film. Yes, um, yes, especially considering that it is uh, nominated for Best Picture this year. Is it also nominated not, for yeah. for Best but, Screenplay? Yeah, Best Screenplay. No, Fortun- fortunately, not Best Director. I was quite concerned that Sorkin was going to get a Best Director, uh, yeah, as well, which would have been. Oh man! Really well, I mean, as I was saying to you before, like you, you personally were quite disappointed by *The Five Bloods*, which was Spike Lee's uh, film of last year, Vietnam War film. Mm-hmm. Um, I I really really loved it, but what I think what we both agree on is that it is a much more interesting choice for this kind of slot that *Trial mm-hmm. of Chicago 7 is, sure. is taking up in the Best Picture category. I actually would have I I would have understood it more if Defy Bloods had been nominated for for best picture because yeah, even though yeah. even though I I personally think like you know elements of you know the narrative structure were a little messy and didn't quite coalesce the way that I wanted them to yeah. I think still it was a very daring way of telling this story and it it took some risks and just because yes. they didn't work for me doesn't mean that those you know risks don't deserve credit like i think we were talking about this before too about just like the cinematography like you can tell you could tell that even if (laughs) even if you don't necessarily like the end result of the choices being made choices are being made for a specific (laughs) purpose are being made choices are being made for a specific purpose and like in service of a story and yes. I had like, you know, we have to stand. We have to respect that. We have and that to, I think is, you know, and that to me is why like Spike Lee is like, you know, one of the greatest directors of all time. Yeah. And yeah. he his work and his body of work will transcend, you know, decades and decades. Like people are going to be talking about any Spike Lee movie years from now. Yeah. Whereas, like, you know, anything that Aaron Sorkin has directed in terms of how it's put together as a film and how it uses cinematic language and film form is totally mm. forgettable, which brings us to uh, our general consensus on Netflix yeah. films and what makes a Netflix Generally film a Netflix film. Well, this is, I mean, just before we really get into that. Yeah, I mean, the Five Blood cinematography was just I I thought was was brilliant, and yet Trial of Chicago Seven is nominated for Best Cinematography, which is insane. What's going on? Like this? Huh? The cinematography of Trial of Chicago Seven is so unbelievably bland. 
like it's <laughs> i don't even know how to describe like i mean i i'm it not looks like a tv movie well yeah but th- this is it right and look it, it has the challenge of it's a courtroom drama or at least it it should be a courtroom drama as we've discussed right. so you're not necessarily going to be playing with cinema's greatest camera tricks in order to present that but at the same time you could be like there's nothing to stop you. Right. It's 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 a choice to film it in the least interesting way possible. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking earlier actually like even even like I mean this is more of a direction than a cinematography thing, but even the most basic moments of drama are shot incredibly poorly. Yeah. Uh the moment where David Dellinger is is like finally like sort of getting mad about um what's going on and he's saying like you know like if you if we're already guilty why not give us a real trial if you really think we're guilty we want to give us a trial and then he gets grabbed by the guards and he punches (laughs) one of them you don't even see what he's doing like the only reason we know he punches them is is that there's a sound effect of a punch happen and then he Mm. says oh i I hit him like it's (laughs) <laughs> oh no! Oh, I hit them. Ah, like, I really goofed up, everybody. <laughs> like, and, and look, like, it's like a cartoon. Do, you don't have to do like some like John Woo style like slow mo punch in the face. Or, I don't know. Although but, that like, would be pretty awesome. <laughs> can you imagine if it was all like all exactly as it is now? But then that one moment. Yeah. <laughs> but but at the same time, like that shot doesn't that shot doesn't even actually capture how awkward that whole movement and that whole situation is. Yeah. And and it's just moments like that where you just think this is let down by the cinematography and the direction as much as it is by the narrative issues that we've talked about and the casting issues we talked about up top. There is so so much wrong with this film and yet it's getting so much buzz. I do do think most people are are kind of pretty happy to say it's a nomination that's going to be forgotten I, I don't think anyone's really put it down as a winner the bookies aren't really like saying no like <laughs> uh, is this is gonna, gonna be the win. upset but um but at the same time even just to get the nomination i think is a big deal and to see yeah to see the cinematography of this praised over something like the five bloods to see screenplay praised as well when sorkin has had enough praise in his career <laughs> like, yeah i it's it's quite like this isn't this isn't the west wing like this isn't the social no. network it's not even close no, no absolutely not and I, I rewatched social network this year uh for my other podcast oh. um and uh, <laughs> <laughs> shameless and, plug alert yeah and and look i found that actually a lot of the story doesn't it, it's not timeless uh because it was written at a very specific moment when we thought facebook although the people behind facebook were these sort of like strange figures uh we still thought facebook could be the best thing that's ever happened to us and mm-hmm. now we know it's the worst thing that's ever happened to us um, but that's kind but, of the magic of it isn't it like that's yes, that's how yeah. you know you've picked a story that was meant to be immortalized in that medium because that movie actually got better with time because now the context that's happened since that movie came out at this point where people either thought that Facebook was going to be the best thing that had ever happened or it was going to be a fad and people were going to like forget about it in a couple years like actually what's happened since then is exactly the worst like possible nightmare scenario which is this you know, uh, uh, self-centered, power-hungry nerd is now in charge of everybody's personal information. Yeah. 
And yeah. that movie got richer with time. And no, I don't you, know if this, right. you know, and I don't know if something like the trial of the Chicago seven, which, you know, that this historical story has definitely gotten richer with time because we see, you know, it's a more things change, the more they stay the same. Mm. But you have to show us why that is. Yeah, absolutely. And and Sorkin said, like, when he first wrote it in, you know, the first draft in 2007, you know, and then it got forgotten for a while. It was then when he picked it up again in 2018, you know, it felt all the more relevant uh, after Trump's election. And then uh, this year, as he was in pro post-production it took on a new relevance mm. with the killings of Breonna Taylor and, and uh, George Floyd yeah which yeah like it did I mean, yeah but, but <laughs> like guess. but like <laughs> that doesn't I, I don't like that's that, that, first of all it doesn't make it timeless right and secondly like that I don't think that that's a credit to your film buddy like that's not yeah that's not something to be excited about well i don't think he was excited about it but you know he was sort of saying like it it, you know it's kind of incredible to see how relevant this still is like sure but like yeah i don't i don't even know exactly what i'm saying i guess i'm just saying i just think it's very strange and i i guess i can just hope that well well i think it's immediately becomes irrelevant through just the fact that that sorkin's whole take on this is such a weak liberal one he's aligning himself with blm right this year when blm was this brilliantly radical movement that Mm -hmm. happened this year and i mean the calls defund the police to completely rethink the system of policing Mm -hmm. within the united states that's exciting man and this film that was unthinkable a year ago like you people couldn't have even conceived of it exactly and this film takes all of the excitement out of that oh i don't even know anyway. and and and, and, why, and it's just i think proof as well that sorkin should just not be in the director's seat like the the no. thing that makes social network great is not just sorkin's sort of snappy writing but it is finch's direction yeah and you know they're a good pair together and uh without each other they make the trial of the chicago seven and bank <laughs> yep so, so um there you go baby come back anyway we're gonna we're gonna We'll, we'll we'll leave it there. We'll, we'll go on to our our new segment. So in the previous season, we had a segment where we would um, we would ask ourselves if we were making this film, uh, would we? You know, previously saying we wouldn't have made the original. Would we now make our version that we just came up with? Uh, but what Harris and I found was that we're both desperate to make things. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we struggled yeah, to say so that. We were like, so we're like, yes, every time. <laughs> So new question. So new question. The new segment, we're doing Netflix season. We're looking at Netflix originals. Um, and the new question is, this film, what makes this film a Netflix original film? We're trying to answer this question. What is a Netflix original film? And why is The Trial of Chicago 7 so clearly a Netflix original film? And and I, we've said this in, in other episodes that we recorded before this, but um, you all won't have heard them yet. Um, so I'll restate what I've basically been saying every time. And that for (laughs) me, um, it feels like most Netflix films, and I think this is definitely true of the the Trial of the Chicago 7, which we mentioned earlier, is that it doesn't feel cinematic at all. It doesn't use the cinematic medium to make the story as strong as it can be or to Mm. make you know or 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 to make this you know a a work that is anything other than like a filmed wikipedia page or a tv (laughs) you know like this feels like something that i would see aired on like you know basic cable um Mm. 
you know, this like special event, uh, you know, that they put on TV and it is just filmed in the most straightforward way possible. And it doesn't feel yeah. like artful in any way. It doesn't feel thoughtful in any way. It's just like, how can yeah. we, you know, what's the easiest way that we can film all of these scenes, put them together and then get this, you know, out on people's TV screens yeah. as soon as possible. And the thing that made me immediately think of that is the there's a moment where the, the protest is happening in the park and there's a band playing and there's a shot of the band playing. And it felt like a shot I would see from, you know, Glastonbury being filmed one year or whatever. On, on, mm-hmm. get, it gets, you know, gets broadcast <laughs> on BBC every year. Like it felt like a shot from that. And then there's this whole framing device used, which we, we didn't even talk about, but it's definitely being cut, where Abby Hoffman is doing these kind of stand-up sets about the trial every weekend at colleges around the country. Uh, it constantly cuts back to him doing these stand-up sets telling the next part of the story, which they're just bad. Like they're not good, but also they're, they're filmed like a Netflix stand-up special. Yep. <laughs> um, and so you can't help feel like you're immediately like, oh, this is a Netflix stand-up special. <laughs> like, yep. I mean, it's very strange. It's, uh, Abby Hoffman's Netflix stand-up special. Exactly. Well, that's it, right? It's. I think you're right. I think there's something uncinematic about it. I think there's something so flat about it. You know, I, I'm hesitant to say like there's something very digital about it. Um, yeah, I know what you mean. I, because look, I, like I'm a firm believer that you can shoot on digital very interestingly. You know, there are cinematographers that are doing that. You know, the, the person that uh, springs to mind is Roger Deakin, who has been, you know, he's like, mm-hmm. since I started shooting on digital, I didn't stop. It's just the, if you, if you do it right, you can do it right. Yeah, it's easier. It's less expensive. Fine. Exactly. But, but there is something about Netflix original films that feels digital in a, in a very flat and untri- an interesting way uh, yeah. there's and, and that i think probably comes less from what you're doing with the camera and more with what you're doing with the lighting yeah and and the color and, and all of these things yeah I'm, I'm even thinking of knives out yes no something like knives out or i think 1917 uh blade runner 2049 there's so much visual depth to these films right that is just lacking in a netflix original film and so yeah there's definitely that. There's definitely something uncinematic about it. But I, there is something intangible that's just slightly out of reach <laughs> for me. <laughs> I don't know what it is. And and listeners... This is a Netflix quality. This is it, right? Like, essence. Ne- like, listeners, this will un- unfold for you more over the next few weeks because obviously we're a few weeks into it. But there is just something about these films that is... It is this weird... Because Netflix <laughs> films... You're right. Again, it's like we all, we constantly make this comparison to TV movies, and that's right. But also, it's wrong because they they're on a far higher budget. There and and you can tell like the production value is good, yeah. but there's still this this slightly oh, it is just beyond slightly beyond my linguistic faculty of something just there that is just not right. That is just this is a Netflix film, and I just. Can't, I can't put my finger on it and I still can't put my finger on it. And maybe I will by the end of this season. Maybe I will. Tune in each week to find yeah, out if I do. I think I I might have an idea, but I think I want to save it for Whoa. a later okay. episode. You're going to save it I for think last people episode. need to... No, not for last episode. <laughs> okay. or, or may, actually, maybe I will, but I think, um, you know... Uh, no, I don't think I will. Um, I think... <laughs> 
<laughs> I think uh, I think maybe uh, our our uh, listeners should um, listen to a couple more episodes yeah. Yeah. Um, before before I get into my my big theory. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So, well, I mean, keep tuned, keep keep listening for that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> keep do tuned. We, do we have anything else we want to say about this, or do we want to very much close the book on Trial of Chicago Seven and never think about it again? Um, I'm I'm ready to to yeah, I'm okay. ready to wrap it up on Trial of Chicago Seven. Thanks. I never want to think about this movie. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for our first episode back for for Netflix season. We're taking down the the big wow. dogs, the streaming giant, and uh, and join us each week as we we're, we're gonna go through. We, we're kind of doing similar to last season how we did like a mishmash of different genres we're doing that but was exclusively within that sort of netflix universe of uh <laughs> largely mediocre films unfortunately um, and kicking off properly next week with 2020's love wedding repeat so Ooh. if you want to <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness if you want to check Something that like out ptsd remembering that movie <laughs> obviously uh, they're all going to be on netflix this time around so hopefully you're someone with a netflix subscription and you can watch it in advance so you have a bit more of an idea of what we're talking about right or don't watch in advance because they're all mediocre films yeah take your take pick, your pick. You're not missing honestly much. it's fine yeah so harrison where where can people find you online um you can find me on instagram twitter uh, and letterboxed at Haya Harrison. And I'm also going to take this as an opportunity to do a shameless plug of my new meme page um, on Instagram, incorrect law and order quotes, um, which uh, juxtaposes stills from law and order with quotes from other things that are definitely not things the characters are saying. So if you want to follow that, uh, we've got some really spicy content coming up at incorrect law and order on Instagram. <laughs> I can be found also on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Caleb Lebster. That's C A L E B L E B S T E R. And you can find us as a podcast at Do Try This Pod on Twitter and Instagram, which is very, it's a very clever name. Do you get? Because because we do try this. <laughs> <laughs> do you do you get it? Do you get? Because we do try this. See, the at best home. jokes are the ones that you have to explain. Because we do try this at home, so it's Do Try This and then Podcast Pod, right? But also, it's it's an instruction. Do try this pod. It's very clever. If you leave this in, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> uh so yeah all right so we'll catch you all next, catch time. You next time and uh happy oscars we did do try this at home that was a maybe you like it production maybe you liked it maybe you didn't <laughs>